Well, good morning. Good to get to worship with you today. If you're new here, my name's Fred. I wanna say a special welcome. Thanks for coming and checking out Redemption. Hope you enjoy the service today. If there's anything we can do for you while you're here, please feel free to let us know. I wanna invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter seven. While you're turning there, I wanna thank Pastor Marty for bringing the word last week. Didn't he do an awesome job? Did a great job with that passage. It was really good. Uh, I got to listen online. I was, took the opportunity with him being on the preaching schedule to go and visit some family down in Georgia. Many of you know my mom's from there. And so had a great time, got away for a few days and uh, was able to, to um, even make some, uh, build some new relationships with another church down there. I had Garrett with me. We went and uh, worshiped at Brainerd Baptist in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which was a great experience. We were going in and I didn't know a whole lot about the church. It's a little more, well, it's, it's a historic church. It's over, I think it's over a hundred years old, very um, historic church there in Chattanooga. I knew they had a traditional service and a contemporary service. So we were going to the contemporary service, but I told Garrett, I said, we'll walk in. And I'm like, now you're gonna have to read the room in here, man. Um, you can't be doing those jumping jacks if everybody else isn't that into it. And um, he did not hesitate. He looked me in the eye and he rebuked me. He said, <laughs> he said, I worship for an audience of one. And I said, all right, I'm, I'm with you, dog. I'm with you, man. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to be a good guest. That's all. <laughs> but we had a great time. Got to check out the, uh, I got to go to my first Georgia Bulldogs game, got to witness the number one team in the nation. I know nobody here cares about that. I know you're all Penn State and Pitt fans, um, but it was good to watch an actual uh, decent football team. So that was nice. <laughs> Well, let's look at Revelation 7 together. I'm going to read verses 9 through 17. There's two parts to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to look at the second part. Let me remind you, we are not covering Revelation verse by verse as we do with a lot of books of the Bible. We have 13 passages we're going to look at out of the 22 chapters of Revelation. So we're far going to cover, far from cover everything in here. Um, and, but I do think that we're taking a nice selective representation of what's in the book of Revelation. I think this would be very helpful. But I wanna encourage you to continue to do your own study. Be reading the book of Revelation. Consider those four views of Revelation that we talked about in the beginning and use the tools that we've been adding to the tool belt here as we go along. So let's look at Revelation 7. I'm gonna read verse nine through 17. It says this, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know, then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Verse 15, for this reason, they are before the throne of God 
and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you pray with me as we consider this text together? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the eternal truth which we have access to through your written, inspired, holy scripture. God, as we continue through revelation, as we look into things that are Many things just too wonderful to understand, too wonderful to put into human words, but nonetheless realities that, ex- that affect the lives that we live, realities that speak to our future. God, as we look into this awe-inspiring book, may you speak to our hearts. God, may the eternal impact the temporal as we live out our lives here in our small little slice of eternity, seeking to obey you, seeking to do your will, seeking to live for your glory. Give us courage in light of our future. Give us strength in light of our current battles and use us, your people, to bring glory to the name of Christ here on earth. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, remember, as we study Revelation, we have some goals. I laid those out in the first sermon on this book. Those goals are to study this book with faith. We want to come believing, not as skeptics. That's not to say we, we can't be critical or skeptical in our, in our attempt to discover truth, but we're coming with faith. We want to study with reverence. This is a book which perhaps more than any other in the Bible, speaks to the holiness of God. We want to come with humility. We know that it's a difficult book. It's a hard book to understand at times. As Marty said last week, though, we we want to focus on the main things. I I believe he said the plain things are the main things. And there's a lot that isn't plain, but there's much that is. And so we want to come with humility, knowing that brothers and sisters in Christ for 2,000 years have sought to understand this book and have disagreed with one another. And so we come with the appropriate humility. Yet we, we, our, our goal is to grow more obedient to Christ. Our goal is not to attain knowledge, to get on Facebook later and, and say, hey, here's, here's what's happening according to the book of Revelation and show off some knowledge that we have. Our goal is to obey the living Savior. Furthermore, we want to overcome the things of this world through Christ. If you, if you miss the fact, uh, as we read through Revelation, that we are in a spiritual battle, then you have not read well. And so we seek to overcome in these spiritual battles through Christ. And finally, we read with the aim of preparing the earth for Jesus' return. We have work to do. We as Christians, assuming, and and I don't assume that you are a follower of Christ. You may be here today just exploring or or whatever, and that's okay. We'll we'll, uh, hope to uh, win you over to join us as followers of Christ. But for those of us who are, we profess to follow Christ, we have work to do. 
You, Jesus Christ did not come merely to save you from your sins. He came to employ you in his service. He came to give you work to do. You have meaningful work to accomplish in this life for the kingdom of Christ. And so we aim to prepare the earth for his return. I like what Daryl Johnson says, a pastor from Canada. He says, there's two pastoral purposes to the book of Revelation. One is to set the present moment, the lives that we live now, in light of the unseen realities of the future. So we wanna live our lives in light of what Revelation reveals about our future that we cannot yet see. The second pastoral purpose is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. There are things happening right now which we cannot see apart from Revelation, apart from God revealing it to us. And when he does, it, it, it frames the way we live our lives here. Well, the passage we look at today, I think is exceedingly helpful on the first aim there, which is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. As we get a glimpse, as we look ahead into the future here in Revelation chapter seven, it, it gives great comfort and hopefully gives great motivation for the way we live our lives here today. So here's where we're at. In chapter six, before we get to chapter seven, it ends with this question, who is able to stand? That's the question. The reason that question arises, because in, in, in chapter five, which Marty preached, we see this in, in the throne room of God, we saw that there was only one who was worthy to open the scroll, which was sealed up with seven seals. And then in chapter six, six of those seals have been opened. And with, with each seal, there is devastation upon the earth. And in light of that devastation, the question arises, if all of this is going to happen on the earth, who is able to stand? Chapter seven provides the answer to that question. There are two groups of people who will be able to stand. The first part of chapter seven mentions the 144,000. This is one of one of the passages of Revelation that excites a lot of people. Who are these 144,000? We know the Jehovah's Witnesses take that and to mean that there will only be 144,000 people in the direct presence of God in eternity. That's completely false. That has no biblical backing whatsoever. You can't even, you can't even get that from Revelation chapter seven, but that is the nature of false religions like that. So, but others would say, that the 144,000 may be actual Jews. And the reason for that is because there's 12,000 taken from each tribe of Israel, though there's some debate over that because of the ordering and the naming of the, the 12 tribes of Israel don't match up with other biblical accounts. It's a whole big, it's a big mess. <laughs> Others believe the 144,000 may just be a representation of all believers all those who have trusted in Christ. It's hard to say. It's one of those passages. The reason I'm not taking that passage other than just a moment here to comment on it is it, it, it's, it's difficult to really come to a firm conclusion on that. And I, I hesitate when people do. Whether it's Jews who are saved or whether it's 
New Testament believers who are saved. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference in the end. It's a lot of people. There's a lot of people in the first half of chapter seven. The second half of chapter seven is gonna be our focus today because when John is shown the throne room of God, when John sees what is happening in God's presence, what does he see? That's the question that this text answers for us today. Who is there in, in, in God's presence as he is seated on the throne, surrounded by countless angels, these 24 elders, the four living creatures, in, 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 in the presence of this entire angelic host of worshipers? Who is there with them? That's what chapter seven reveals. So if you have the handout in front of you, you wanna take some notes today or you're taking notes in your uh, Revelation scripture journal, here's the first point that I wanna make. What do we see in the presence of God? In the presence of God, the great multitude gives him glory. The first thing to note here is that God does not sit alone. There is what is described here in chapter seven as a vast multitude. Let's look at verse nine again. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number standing before the throne and before the lamb. Think about that. John sees people, he doesn't just see, he doesn't see, just see Jewish believers. He doesn't just see those whom he would have uh, encountered on a day-to-day basis, uh, citizens of the Roman Empire. He sees people and they come from every nation. They come from every tribe. They come from every people group. They come from every language. There before God in the presence of his glory, he is worshiped. He is worshiped by representatives of the entire human race. I love that. I love that, especially in a just largely homogenous area like the one that we live in, where there is little diversity, where there is little variety in our cultural expressions or our ways of worshiping God, even in the language that we use to imagine. Imagine being before God, before his throne, worshiping the lamb. Brothers and sisters from every nation, from every tribe, How did they get there? These are questions that that come to my mind. How did they get there? Well, obviously, believers take the gospel to them. This gets me excited when I I think about our our missionary partners who are serving around the world, when I think about partners that we have, especially who are going to unreached people groups. There are people groups. There are what, what you might take here as tribes, people, or languages that currently have no representative believers. 
There is no one from their tribe. There is no one from their people group who worship Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But there will be. That's awesome. I think as, 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 as we send out missionaries to go to those unreached people groups, there's a hesitation. Well, what if, what if nobody believes? What if there's no fruit? What if, there's, what if there are no salvations? And then I read Revelation 7, and I know there will be. And it, there's no promise that the first generation of missionaries to go to those people groups will see fruit. But there is a promise that there will be brothers and sisters from that tribe, from that people group, from that language before the throne of God Almighty. And we will rejoice together. It says they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches signify victory. You would wave palm branches after a victorious battle. This is a celebration of victory. They're wearing these white robes. That'll come up again in a little bit. And it says in verse 10, they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. In eternity, those words will echo forever. The debate between which religion is true and which religions are false, the debate between, well, maybe all paths somehow lead to God will be settled definitively in eternity as this vast multitude cries out with authority, salvation belongs to this God. And he's seated on the throne. He has achieved our salvation through the Lamb who is at his right hand to reign forevermore. Think about this. Put yourself in this scene for a moment. This vast multitude which no one could number. I don't know how many people that is, but it's a lot. It's not 10. It's not 100. It's not 50,000. It is a congregation of saints which you cannot count. And there we are, worshiping God together, proclaiming that salvation belongs to him. Put yourself in this scene. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What does it mean to have lived your whole life surrounded by people who oppose you, who disagree with you, who wanna fight with you, who reject the Christ and the salvation that you offer to them? What does it mean to come out of a world where it, it constantly seems like Christians are losing and to enter in to, I mean, think about John. Here's John, he's on the island of Patmos. He's exiled for preaching the gospel. John is, in, in his time in history, he's on the losing team. Christians are being slain. Christians are being arrested and thrown into jail. He is, he is not experiencing this 
day-to-day victory that, that we might think of when we think of the apostles in the first century. He's experiencing loss after loss after loss. And yet, those losses are actually victories. John is given this vision of this great, John is sitting there thinking, is the gospel ever gonna make it out of the Roman Empire? Is the gospel gonna, Jesus said we'd go to the ends of the earth. Is the gospel ever gonna, or, or is this it? Is, is this how the gospel ends? We get about 60 years of gospel expansion and then the Roman Empire snuffs out the light of Christ on earth. And John gets this assurance. You're gonna join in a vast multitude which cannot be numbered. Men and women from every tribe, nation, tongue, all of it. When Garrett and I were at that Georgia Bulldog game, there's 92,000 sold out Georgia fans. There's probably 91,000. There's probably about 1,000 Kentucky fans there. Those poor souls. They had no idea what was coming for them. But there in the presence of tens of thousands of people who are all celebrating the same thing, who are all there to to cheer on their team and to bask in the victory of beating another football team. There's this energy. There's this excitement. Like, you you realize, you you know, again, I know nobody cares about Georgia here. I come here and I'm like, only Georgia fan. I go down there and I'm one of 90 plus thousand. And and you realize, like, I'm, I'm part of something bigger that doesn't matter and is really dumb. (laughs) But as Christ believers, as Christ followers, as believers of Jesus, you and I, sometimes we feel like we're the only one. That's what's so beautiful about coming together here on Sunday. We get in here together and we're raising our hands together. We're lifting our voices together. I love, I love when the worship team gets a little bit soft and, and you can just hear the voices of the crowd in this room praising Jesus together. And you're reminded I'm not alone. I've got brothers and sisters. I've, I've, I'm part of a family here, but, but you leave here, you go to school, you go to work, you go in your community or whatever, and you feel like you're the only one sometimes. Well, let me remind you, in the presence of God is this great multitude of believers who felt like they were the only ones sometimes, of believers who felt like they were on the losing team sometimes in victory is theirs. The next thing we see in the presence of God, we see that the angels give him glory. We see that the angels give him glory. We're gonna look at verse 11 in a second. Let me make sure you get that down. It's not just the vast multitude that is praising him and glorifying God. It is the angels themselves. Now, what, what are the angels? Who are the angels? We, we know that God has not only created the creatures that we see here on earth, the human race and all of the animals and everything, all the living things that we see here on earth. We know that God has created a, a race of angels, which 
we admittedly don't know a ton about or as much as we might want to know about them. But we do know that there are, there are certain features of these created beings which cause men to stand in awe. I mean, think about it. Every time you see angels appear into human beings in the Bible, what happens? They're afraid. They freak out. <laughs> People get scared. Grown men get afraid at the sight of angels. So these are, these are glorious creatures. These are, in some sense, intimidating creatures. These, these are not... You know, the, sometimes the, the, the cultural images that we have of angels, uh, you know, they're always so gentle and pleasant and soft-spoken and kind. Well, then why are people falling down on the ground in fear when they see them? It says in verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God. Now let me just pause right there. If we see angels and we are afraid, and angels see God and fall down and worship him, where does that put us? In the hierarchy of beings that are let's say glorious, perhaps intimidating or worthy of worship, we're, we're, not, we're not where we think, and I, I say this, the secular mind thinks that human beings are at the top of the food chain. We're not. We are created. We are finite. We Tremble in the presence of angels who tremble in the presence of God. So they fall face down before the throne. Who does? All the angels, the elders, the 24 elders are a group of, of folks that are mentioned in the Bible uh, or in Revelation a couple of times. You have these four living creatures who are mentioned in the Old Testament, who are mentioned again here in Revelation a couple of times. And if you go back to the description of the four living creatures in chapter four, these are fascinating creatures for sure. But they all fall face down before the throne and worship God, saying amen, blessing and glory. Now this is a response to what the great multitude said. Salvation belongs to our God. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. These powerful, awe-inspiring creatures worship God and proclaim that blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength are due his name forever and ever. That's quite a statement. Is there anything on earth that deserves blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength forever and ever, there's nothing. 
There's nothing on this earth that compares to this God who is seated on the throne. They, they make that clear. If, if these angels who cause men to shake in fear are, are giving their, their honor and their praise to this God, what will we do? And the answer is we will do the same. In the presence of God, we will give him the glory that is due his name. In the presence of God, we will see him as he truly is. The glory of his might. The praiseworthiness of his grace and of his kindness. I said in the beginning that Remember when I said Daryl Johnson has these two purposes, pastoral purposes for the book of Revelation. One is to, to seat this current moment that we live in, to put our lives in perspective of this future reality that we don't yet see. How does the fact, knowing that you are created to go into God's presence to join this vast multitude of believers, to join in the angelic creatures, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, to join in the worship and praise of God. Put your current life into perspective. If you're living your life for the things that are typical of our culture, then probably the, the hopes that you have, the, the best vision that you have for your existence is something like living the last few years of your life on a warm beach somewhere with enough money in the bank that you don't have to worry about going to work. That's, that's, that's like the best vision that we come up with for our lives. And Revelation 7 expands our vision of what our life, where our life is going and what our life is heading towards to include the presence of the eternal God. That's a lot to get your head around. That's a lot to deal with. That's a lot to, to, to grab a hold of, to try to, to, try to think, my, I'm not just headed for a warm beach for the last sickly few years of my life here on earth, I'm headed for the presence of God. If that doesn't change the way you view your life, if that doesn't change the way you live the few years that you have here on earth, then you have not understood the beauty, the glory, the magnificence of God's presence. And so let's continue because I want to help us do that. Not only in the presence of God do the great multitude give God glory and the angels give him glory. In the presence of God, sinners have their sins washed away. In the presence of God, sinners have their sins washed away. How? 
will we stand before God? How? Listen, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what your morning was like. I just know that a long time ago, Kim and I decided we were never gonna drive to church together because I was tired of the guilt and the shame that I had to walk into church with of how I reacted to my family every morning getting ready for church. And so we just said, well, let's just not do that. Let's, you just get ready and you come when you're ready and I'll get ready and I'll go when I need to be. And it all works out and it's been really good. If, if we had enough parking, I would recommend all married couples drive to church separately. <laughs> but we don't have enough parking for that. I'm the pastor, I get special privileges. My wife and I get two parking places. But in all seriousness, think about, think about what you did over the past seven days. Think about the thoughts that you thought. Think about the, the words that you said. Think about the deeds that you did. Is the kind of life you're living consistent with the idea that you should be in the presence of God forever? Of course not. How is it that we are going to be in the presence of this infinitely holy, this, this infinite, infinitely majestic and glorious God forever? How is it that we get to be the recipients of eternal life? How is it that we are going to be glorified alongside of Jesus Christ? How is it that we are called saints? The biblical use of the term saint is not given to those who lived an exceptional Christian life some years after they have died as, as is popular in the Catholic Church. There's, there's no precedent for that in the Bible. The exact opposite happens in the Bible. When the Bible speaks of saints, it speaks of Christians still alive, still sinning, still fumbling their way towards paradise. We are the saints. How is it that we are counted as righteous? And not just counted as, but declared as. How is it that we are considered to be saints? The answer is the blood of the Lamb. That's the, the Revelation chapter seven answer. It is the blood of the lamb that makes us clean. It is the blood of the lamb that purifies us to be in his presence. Verse 13 says, then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are sinners, unworthy of God's mercy, unworthy of God's eternal presence, unworthy of the paradise to which they now live in. How did they get there? They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. God prepares men for eternity by sending his son to die in our place, 
Jesus lived on earth the righteous life that is required of you that you have completely failed to live. And Jesus died on the cross the death that you and I so definitely deserve to die. We are sinners against God. We, we, have not, we have not kept his commands. We have not lived according to his righteous standard. And yet, we stand in heaven counted as though we have. We stand in the presence of God dressed in these bright white robes signifying the purity signifying the sanctification of our souls that can only be made possible through Jesus' death in our place. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in your place to atone for your sins, to make you right before God. I wanna come back to that when we're ready to close. But I've got one more point I wanna make. In the presence of God, his people experience his goodness forever. I titled this sermon, The Glory of God and the Good of His People, because I, talk, I, I try to talk about this often, that the glory of God, what is good for God, what exalts God, what, what, what gives him the praise that he is due, the glory of God and our good are not things that are at odds with each other. It's not as though one thing in life can be for our good, but not for God's glory, or, or, or vice versa, it could be for God's glory, but not for our good. The two are intimately connected forever. What is for God's glory is for our good, and what is for our good is to God's glory. And we see here in the presence of God these two things just perfectly harmonious, harmoniously existing together. God is getting the glory he deserves as men and angels and creatures worship him and we are experiencing the ultimate good. In the presence of God, his people experience his goodness forever. How so? This, this is how this passage ends. Verse 15, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. The image here is he, he's, he's placing a, a tent over them. He is protecting them and they will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat for the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The reason, if you go back to the, if you just think back to the verses immediately before this where it's revealed to John that these, this vast multitude are those coming out of the great tribulation. And of course, I'm applying these verses to us. That's for a couple of reasons. One, it is possible, it's, it's possible that we're living in the great tribulation. Not, probably not, if you think of the great tri tribulation as a definitive seven-year period, but one of the interpretations of Revelation 
kind of expands that to mean that that seven years is, because seven is the number of completion, that that seven years is actually the entire church age, which we are definitely living in. And all who come out of that time, having followed Jesus, have suffered, having suffered in this world for him, are included in that number. That's one possibility. The other reason I feel comfortable, even if, even if those who hold to a, a, a seven, an actual seven-year tribulation of which we are not yet in, even those who hold to that view, we see these, the same description of God's care over his people repeated later on in the book of Revelation to extend to all believers. And so what is true of this vast multitude here is certainly true of us. That's my point. We will experience God's presence in this way. He will shelter us. We'll no longer hunger. We'll no longer thirst. We'll no longer be beat down by the sun and the scorching heat. Those represent just the difficulties of living in a fallen world. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd us. He'll guide us to the springs of the waters of life and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The reason it's so important to look ahead to what God has revealed here in Revelation chapter seven is because it informs how we live now. It informs how we go through trials, how we experience pain, how we experience opposition and persecution in our pursuit of living for the gospel. God, here's what you need to know. It's all for God's glory and it's all for our good. I love the passage in Romans 8 where Paul says, we know that all things, this is Romans 8, 28, if you wanna write down the reference, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good of those who love God. What a powerful statement that is. Verse 29 says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that, <coughs> so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The point is that God is taking us from where we're at now all the way to Revelation chapter seven. That is, that is at least part of, maybe not the fullness of, depending on where you seat this Revelation chapter seven in your timeline of eternity future. That is part of the glorification of the saints. That is part of us being transformed from these lowly, struggling sinners called saints that we are today into those worthy by the blood of the lamb to stand in the presence of God and enjoy him forever and ever and ever. In the, in the process of going from where we are now to there, just remember all things work together for your good. That's a great way to look at the many, many difficulties, trials, tribulations that we face in this life. If you can maintain before you 
a vision of your future in Christ, it'll make it so much easier to go through this life. Because you, you understand this is not meaningless. That, that every little bit of trouble that comes your way as you are obeying Christ is preparing you for the future, which Revelation 7 describes that we will experience. We know that when we suffer, we suffer for God's glory and for our good. We know that when we win, when things go well, it is for God's glory and for our good. All of life is now working to prepare us for the future which he has ordained for us. All of it. The question is, this is the question that you must answer today. The question is, will you be there? The question is, have you turned from living a life that is focused on this world to follow Jesus? Have you decided? Have you come to a point of decision? I'm not living for this world any longer. I'm just not gonna do it. I'm living for Jesus. And have you placed all of your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, for your salvation, and for the gift of eternal life? If you have not done that, you better do it today. You better do it today. This is too important to put off. It's far too important. The most important thing in your life is where you stand before Christ. Because not everybody is going to experience Revelation chapter 7. Far too many will be cast out from his presence. Barred from experiencing his goodness for all of eternity. Will you be there? If you will, if you've done that, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, committed your life to living for him, this is your future. So whatever trials you face now, just keep this in front of you. Just keep this in mind. Just remember, this is for your good and for God's glory. He's gonna use it. He's gonna use it. He's gonna use the pain, the heartache, the struggle, the frustration of this world for your good and for his glory. Would you pray with me? Jesus, only you make these things possible. If it weren't for what you came and did on the cross, if it weren't for your great love for us displayed in your leaving behind the goodness of heaven in coming to this earth to suffer and to die in our place, if it weren't for that, none of this would be relevant to us. We would be dead in our sins without the hope of salvation and eternity with you. But you did come. And you did die in our place. 
and you did rise again on the third day and you do give eternal life and you do wash away our sins and cause us to be clothed in your righteousness. And we thank you and we praise you. And God, if there's any among us who have not received that gift of eternal life today, God, would you cause them today to be born again as your word describes it, to experience new life, to come into a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of viewing you. And may we live our lives in light of this eternity. May we live every day for your glory. May we stop chasing after the things of this world and start chasing after the glory of God manifest here in our lifetime. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.